0: Welcome to the Gamers Over 50 podcast. This is episode number 13, lucky number 13, and you are lucky because this is the intro to indie games. And this is going to be a two-part podcast. So we're going to go over the intro and we're going to talk about what indie games are, where they come from, and we're not just going to talk about indie video games. I also want to talk about indie tabletop RPG games because they're are a lot of folks out there creating some really cool content, and I want to make sure everybody gets gets a fair share. So the first podcast, we're really going to talk about it. We're going to discuss it. I um, actually, weirdly enough, have a little bit of personal experience here, and it's very little. Just little tiny amount of experience um but in this podcast we're going to call out we're going to talk about it we're going to talk about a little bit where you can go find them and look at them in case you want to do a little research um i am getting this podcast out a little bit earlier because i have to do uh some personal stuff this week and i'm not just didn't see it happening so i wanted to get it done earlier um but the second part of this i'll actually go into some of the indie games and talk about them because i have been playing several indie games for a while and Enjoying indie games on a really high level, and you're going to chuckle out of when you, you hear them in the second one. So that's a tease to get to the second one. Um, really what I want to talk about first, though, is, you know, what are, what are indie games? Really, we say indie games, or you may hear indie anything in the face. But for indie games, it stands for independent games. And again, our friends at Wikipedia, and please donate to Wikipedia if you use it, and everyone does, Donate them a little bit of money. Don't have a couple lattes, or don't go out for uh, lunch one day. Take your lunch two days in a row, or something like that. But get them some uh, get them some money because they do some great work, and it's actually really helpful in subjects like indie games because there aren't big companies behind it. And I'm not trying to pick on the Microsofts or the Amazons or the EAs or the Blizzards, and I could keep going for a while on big game companies. But independent games are folks who really want to develop those. So, per Wikipedia, independent game indie games refers typically to games created by individuals or smaller development teams without financial support of a large game publisher. Now, they they say in contrast to most AAA games. I didn't even know we called big games AAA games. So cool enough to learn that, and the term may also be able to be something to talk about that are financed by publishers who do not exert, you know, significant artistic control on the developers. So let's say, you know, I run into or I get the Powerball. I get almost all the numbers in the Powerball. I don't get the giant Powerball number, or maybe I do. And I'm like, hmm, I know some folks who are really creative, and I want them, you know, they they wanted to create a game. I'm going to give them some money to create a game. And I'm not going to tell them what game to create. They're just going to go create that game. So that's really kind of the innate. You know, and what's really kind of cool about indie games is that you get a lot of innovation, and you have a lot of risks that you know the big game companies aren't going to take. The big game companies are trying to make money with every single title that goes out there, so you may have some really kind of interesting and novel uh, tech, not technological uses. You may have some gameplay or mechanics that are completely brand new, or they're going to you know they create. A brand new element into games, and what's really great about it is it creates a unique experience, a unique experience, and that unique experience isn't just in the gameplay and the mechanics, but that you start seeing some of the beautiful art. And um, we talked when about Orcacon, and we talked about cats and castles, and the the art. That the team at Cat and Castles did was fantastic. It was really cute and it was built exactly for the environment of you know being able to play a DD or an RPG-like game with my kids. So you know, cute Mr. Fox and cool things like the, the crying yeti and things like that. So there is an artistic level to it, which makes it so cool because you get really neat stuff. All right. So the interesting thing about it is how do you get indie games though? Now, you may get them at a convention, and I can guarantee if you ever make it to a, a Penny Arcade Expo or PAX um, or some other game conventions, you will find folks selling their games, um, especially in the indie section. And the reason why I'm bringing this up a little bit here is because I want to go deeper into it in the, in the second um, uh, podcast when we start talking about where to get the games because I do want to pick places, not just getting all the games from one place. i want to talk about where you can get them in those and um, also go into some of the nuances. So, all right. But, you know, really, you're going to find these games digitally. You're going to have to order them online. Some of them you will, uh, you know, you'll download some of them you may download a PDF, depending on if it's a video or an RPG. Um, and included some, you may be able to get like off of an Android, the um, Google Play, or you may get them on, on iTunes and download them there because indie games could be hosted up there. Now, let's talk a little bit about the history of indie games. And the good news is, I brought an expert with me to talk about the, uh, the history and he's a self-proclaimed expert, uh, it's me, because I actually have written an indie game. But let's get to that in a second. Uh, again, per our good friends at Wikipedia, because I like to have a definition, and then kind of deep go a little deeper, is the nature of indie game development, and it could be video or regular, had really started with the rise of the PC, but also when certain games, like d d came out. Um, in the 70s. But really, you know, the PC brought it about um, because we used to have a, you know, a term for when we would get a game or we get software. It's called shareware. And, you know, that was prior probably to some of us reading copyright laws. But also there were, you know, you go to the sometimes to the, uh, the local PC store or the what at some point we had a radio shack that we would go to and We had uh, the suburbs outside of Chicago when I was younger and you know, there'd be people there and buying components and stuff, but every so often there'd be somebody going, Hey, I created a game. You guys like to play it. This is long before uh, you, you know, if you've ever seen the old adage where people hand you the free CD, don't ever take the free CD like, Hey, this is my demo. And I made it. Um, If you've watched Mr. Robot, people have hacks on them that hack your computer. If that's happened, run a virus, run all that type of stuff, make sure you don't have it. But, This is long before that. And so, you know, the mainstream with, you know, indie gaming really came not in that 70s and 80s and 90s, but as the Internet kind of hit, you know, the and it really started, you know, grew up because there there was an easier way to download stuff like the Internet. Um, and then we had areas where you could go download those, and we'll talk a tiny bit about it and go into them. But, you know, in, in 2010, you started seeing these massive games. And if you haven't heard of these games, we're going to go into them a little bit more. Not on this podcast, but I do want to call out um, one that I see every time I see an indie game expo. I see Super Meat Boy. Um and it is kind of a funny game. It's a ball of meat. He's kind of great. Uh, you've seen other games like Fez or Braid. Uh, Cuphead. Cuphead has may have been actually gotten some huge, I think it may have gotten some financial backing. Because I've seen it all over the consoles, all over the PCs and stuff like that. Can okay, we're going to do that. But probably the most significant indie game. And it's actually, I think it's the most, our highest selling game ever is Minecraft. Minecraft was an indie game. So if you've ever heard of Minecraft or you've heard of your kids playing Minecraft or somebody saying, oh, I built this in Minecraft, totally, you're going to love the second podcast we go on it. All right. So a little more about that is going back to that shareware stuff back in the 70s is, you know, I was talking to a friend and we were talking about our Apple IIe and uh, as crazy as it sounds, I actually still have my Apple IIe and my disk drives and the my video card. and I can actually get MS-DOS to load up, and I can get some games to load up. I've started to not do it because I don't want to burn out my hardware, and instead I use a, an emulator on a PC site. But, you know, I had an MS-DOS 3.2 disk from Microsoft. Uh, you know, that and the game disk that I made, I made it and actually wrote my own game in my in basic, are probably two of my most prized possessions. They're actually the two things outside of like birth certificates and stuff like that that are in the safe that I can guarantee, you know, that would be the thing. I want that to survive because that DOS disk was my first invention in the technology. It was It grew and showed me a lot that I could, hey, I can write code. I can write games. And so I wrote a game. And really, it was a game that had a lot of if-then statements, so it would ask you yes or no questions, or you'd have, like, three or four directions to go east, north, south, east, west. And then asked them go to, so you'd go to a certain line of code, or you go sub, you'd go to a subroutine, sub and, and that subroutine would be like, you see a door. You know, the couple options are, do you open the door, do you knock the door, do you inspect the door? You go through the door, those types of things. And my game was set in a park where you got left behind by your family. Uh, that isn't a proper, and a personal reflection. That never happened. I didn't get left at a park. I got left somewhere else once. Yeah, at a Kmart. It was okay because they had a, a con, you know, a video game cabinet, so I was easily entertained. Anywho, but you get left at a park, and you, you know, need to find items to stay alive before your family comes around and you know the setup was let you walk around to a few buildings and like if you get a fishing rod uh the fishing rod actually was what kind of saved you no matter what because you would get kind of stuck in this role do you want to fish yes do you want to fish yes and after you hit 21 fish hey your family showed up um it was pretty kind of at the time for me the perfect therapy because i was a new kid i didn't know a lot of people i wrote a game and i remember taking that game to school and showing some of my friends. And they are like, oh, this is great. You should write more. Uh, I I started writing more. I put some more into it. But then actually the funny thing is that summer I actually found out I was a pretty good swimmer. And so I joined the swimming team. And uh, the game is where it's at. So version two of my game, as crazy as it may sound, started uh, or was effectively delivered to two people, uh, Ron and Steve. I'm not going to use their last names in case they they don't want to get bothered. But... Uh, two people. And then after 1981 was my last game development. That doesn't mean I wouldn't think about doing game development. So if there's any indie game folks out there, I'd love to sit down and share thoughts. Um, but you know, this game really at the time would have been considered that, you know, shareware. Now, there was another name for it that I kind of found, and this is a funny name, but it was also called Bedroom Coders. And I'm like, Okay, I guess that's right, because my computer was in my bedroom or my friends had their computers in their bedrooms. Eventually my mother was like, You spend too much time in your bedroom. We're moving the computer downstairs. We call it the living room coders, I guess then. Uh, but you know it really became, you know, from 1970s to the 2000s, you would go to a bulletin board. Uh, which, for everyone who doesn't know, a bulletin board—you actually had to have a modem. You had to dial into the bulletin board, and then you could look at—you know—you had a screen. You had several options. You could download something. Um, most often, if it was, this is going to sound horrible—if it was like two megabytes, you would start your download in the evening. You would go to bed. Every so often, I would every about every hour because I was downloading, I'd wake up and go back in and look at the modem lights, make sure they were still working. Um, I don't think that whoever the phone company figured out that I was dialing local numbers and sitting on their lines for like days at a time, downloading games or downloading programs and looking and stuff. But, you know, I played a lot of shareware stuff up into the 2000s when, you know, we had motives. Then the Internet hit. Internet changed everything because you no longer had to go to the Radio Shack. You no longer had to find your friends. You know, I to a bulletin board. You could just go on the internet and say, "Oh, cool. There's a game I can download." This actually really helped open up at the time and the mobile market hadn't really been established at that, you know, in the early 2000s, but the console market had. And what was kind of crazy is that they, there was a uh, service and I cannot remember the cable company. Oh, I want to say it was Time Warner, but I don't think that's right. I'll have to ask my friend Harry slide that in the second podcast but we actually would log on and play sega games people would create games and we would be like oh cool let's go play that game and it was you know we we're playing sega console games in the uh, you know in the middle of the night just learning every single thing we could about them and you know Spend a lot of time, and it would download over the cable, so it was so much faster. Um, and it was right as the internet had happened. We were, you know, we were sitting there, but the cable companies were built into it. A couple of other things that really helped develop those those indie titles at the time, where there were new development platforms that came out. I'm not going to dive too much into these, but if you've ever heard of Unity, that's a game development platform, or if you've heard of the Unreal Engine. Now Unreal games is still around. We actually talked about them when we talked about the PC side, and let me see if I can remember exactly the company that Unreal is working for. I think, if I'm correct, it might be Epic Store, the Epic Games is, is out there, but Unreal Games actually has uh, a set you know of games you can play, and, and that's you know it's pretty cool. Um, So you had these engines that could allow developers to create any games, not in spending months and developing a platform or anything, but spending weeks, maybe, creating a quicker, faster game, or spending, you know, sorry, not spending months developing the platform, but spending months developing the game, which made it really cool. The other side is the games started getting real exposure. They started seeing more marketing coming their way which was awesome because you started seeing awards and events, and events like the Independent Games Festival. Uh, you know, you started seeing you know a lot, like I said early on, Super Meat Boy. We started hearing about it more. We started hearing more about Braid. Uh, another one is World of Goo. And then exactly like I said earlier, you had the best-selling game of all time, Minecraft. So you had indie games that were not just, hey, this is a cool niche game. Do you guys like playing... You know, Robo Rally, the, the game, the, you know, the board game. This is a game that's like that. Now, there were games out there, and if you've never seen Minecraft, at go to, um, was it, first to fourth grade at most schools, and there's probably 20, 30 Minecraft experts sitting around. And then there's another 100 to 200 of them that are just like, yeah, it's fun. I play it. Uh, so you had really these awards, these festivals coming out. The other side of things is crowdfunding started. And crowdfunding is, if you've never heard, is when, let's say you and I and other people decide to give money to a developer so that they can get a game sometime in the future. Are they going to, they're going to build a concept or they're going to build a complete model. And that and that goes for videos both and tabletop-type games. So video, phone, all that stuff. And they get orders so that they have enough money to finish the game or maybe build the pieces and send the game out. Um, one of the things that we'll go into a little bit, because there are some amazing games coming, I mean board games, amazing tabletop games coming out, but there's also some really awesome video-type games coming out, video games, PC games phone games are come out, but kickstarter.com. If you've never been to Kickstarter, I may have just created an obsession for you. And the reason I say that is Kickstarter has not just games, but it has art. It has tools. It has, uh, developing food additives that are not additives, I should say, but food types. Um, it, you got to just check Kickstarter out. It is fantastic. Uh, there are a couple of games that have really blown my mind recently by looking at them and they are funding, they're like fully funded within like two to four hours. Uh, first one is Return to dark tower, dark tower being a game that came out of the, um, you know, 80s, 70s and 80s. I think it was in the 80s. It was the coolest game of all time in the 80s. It is still about to become the coolest game again. Uh, Migration to Mars is out there. Another very cool game that's going to be coming out, both tabletop. And then you have Furballs and Hollow Knight, which are great indie video games. And, you know, I usually don't go for the shooter games. But, uh, you know... Migration to Mars is a little bit there, but Furballs and hollow Knight really are kind of those fun games that you will, you'll will be able to enjoy that. You can go out and put something on Kickstarter. Uh, what's kind of a funny thing is, is there was a movie called super troopers and they actually got funded for their second movie on Kickstarter. The second movie is really funny. They, the Canadian thing is connected and I'm close to Canada. So I love it. Although I think they didn't paint Canadians as nice as they truly are. All right. So really from, you know, from 2015, we started seeing that there were a lot of indie games that were easier to build. And people were going, oh, my gosh, we're going to flood the market. We're going to have too many games. We're not going to be able to do anything. And then there are other people that are on the other side. No, no, we're going to have better games. We're good. Um, the, you know, Steam, we talked about them. Steam, the, the game distribution platform, uh, was a place where you could find an entire indie category. And you could also go out to say the Humble Bundle, and it you know, you kind of have to go look at the Humble Bundle to figure out which you know, if you want to play games out on the Humble Bundle or not. Um, there, but there are always indie game kind of you know, hey, here's 10 10 indie games. In fact, I think it's still up right now, but there is something for the Australian Bushfires that has several of their indie games. I don't want to tell you too many because a couple of them are actually on the part two podcast. Uh, so you, you really, you know, you had a lot of people that were freaking out of this. Now you also had things like the global game jam, uh, which is actually run by a very good friend of mine, Kate Edwards. And she's the executive director of the Go- global game jam, which if we've kind of talked about that a little bit before um, I'm hoping to get Kate on a future podcast so that we can kind of talk about what the global game jam is. Um, but you know, Kate is also a huge plethora of information for me and actually helped me on, on this podcast. Cause I was really looking for some good stuff. So, you know, you have all of these areas to go get games and you have find games and, you know, there, again, like I said, there are some really cool games that have come out in the last few years. One of my favorite ones, and this will be something we talk about in the second part. It's called the untitled goose game. It's also called just the goose game, uh, around certain circles. People will be like, Oh, the goose game. So, very cool game that's out there, but you know a lot of people are talking. Indie games are still not getting the big commercials. They're not the Super Bowl, or, or they're not sponsoring leagues of sports or eSport leagues. You know, there's no Goose Game eSport league, which if there was, would be the it would it would crush everybody else because the Goose Game is hilarious. Um, and it would hit a totally different market (laughs) of people who aren't really into the total competition to be more doing funny stuff. Um, but there's not enough press out there for any games. So, you know, a lot of that stuff is kind of word of mouth. Hey, did you hear about this game or did you see this game? So, you know, a lot of people are maybe moving some of their budget when they're developing a game over to marketing. Now, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. It's part of their budget. They have to kind of decide it. Um, What is very interesting is, and this is a quote about the video game industry. In 2008, a developer could earn around 70% of a game's retail price and 85% if sold digitally. Now, this can lead to the appearance of more risky creative projects. And social websites got involved in this. There are... You know, they're in effect going to be less commercial success. Now, I'm saying, like, you know, oh, I made a billion dollars writing an indie game. It totally happened. Minecraft, right? Um, but those are, you know, but the, instead it could be, oh, I made this. Now I can get some investment to make my next game. And remember, back if we were thinking, remember Richard Garfield, creator of Magic. Last podcast talked about it. He or actually two podcasts ago. He created Robo Rally. They said nope, cost too much. Create another game. So he created Magic the Gathering. So he made a lot of money. Then created a Robo Rally. So that you know, there's a there's also a joke that's in a lot of Kevin Smith movies, or I think it's in at least one James Silent Bob, where they talk about you have to make the commercial success so you can go make the independent movie and. There are a lot of, you know, familiarities between independent film, independent games. Uh, I think independent film gets a lot more love because they've got, like, TV channels about it now. It would be great to have a TV channel about indie games and just talk about them. Um, Anybody who's wanting to do that, I will totally host that for you. Anywho, but that's under the video games. I also wanted to dive into indie tabletop because, like I said, Cats and Castles, you're going to see indie tabletop games tabletop games are a little different than video games because a video game, you can download it, you can play it, delete it. tabletop game, you still have to get get played, you know, built into. So really thinking about indie, you know, not just an RPG, because you could have those, but also indie, you know, game publishing, really there's not, again, not a lot of money from big companies that are doing this. And it's not something that's created for independent publishers to really get their stuff out. But there are ways to get their stuff out. So, you know, really looking at how the formats of an indie tabletop game would go is you have obviously digital format, print, um, but the print's kind of hard because if you're going to print it and ship it to someone, Wouldn't it be just easier for them to print it or you know have it sent over to like a Costco or Walgreens or something to print it out for them? Um, some or Office Depot or something like that. Um actually I've been thinking when I purchase a game digitally, I may send it to Office Depot because they can laminate it for me. Um so think about that. But you know, a lot of the RPG publishers have abandoned PDFs because piracy. People can crack the PDF and steal your work make money off of it or you know have them say oh come to my site and get this game and they think they're getting it for free but they're watching ads that person's making money somewhere in in this so you know there is a counter piracy there so to get away from that there's been you know html text or blog where you know the games are kind of given away for free or there's you buy this and you get an email with the game stuff in it. So, you know, really thinking of it from the perspective of how to get those games is really downloads. Um, there are some folks who want to bound, bind books, um, which a gamer like myself, I would love to have a bound book of a certain game I like, and I'm not going to name it because we're going to talk about it in the next podcast. But I would love to have that, that they can get it bound, and I would actually pay for that. And I think there are gamers out there who will pay for that. Um, The biggest word I saw this week was the one going on with all the hubaloo that's occurring over in uh, the other Washington, Washington. But the the one I saw in in researching indie tabletop games is called disintermediation. I said it right. And it's a wow, yay. It's a key concept of game distribution because independent publishers typically lack established business relationships with distributors and retailers. And they often achieve, you know making money by the game creator doing e-commerce or in-person at game conventions, which is kind of what we talked about the whole time, but I really wanted to use a giant word finally that I could say correctly in a podcast. So hooray. Um, But really think about that as you either selling them online, you're meeting people in person and all of that's, you know, those are great ways to make money nowadays. Heck look at Etsy. You go to the craft sale same thing same concept now there are organizations that actually specialize in this and i want to just give them a quick shout out because you have drive rpg and it really is the kind of the leading source or considered leading source for uh, indie rpg so if you're looking for something specific inside of your rpg world maybe you need a special maps or maybe special adventures drive through rpg they should have a pretty cool history of a couple sites that got together and then created um and you know you also have groups like the forge and the forge was actually um i'm trying to remember who was created apologize i can't remember who was created but ron edwards is kind of the person who's brought this and he was editor and it's really uh influenced by ron's essay system does matter which if you know anybody out there who's been a project manager You might understand what that means. Um, But it does, you know, how we sell, how we do that. So in the Forge community, uh, there is really a narrativist school of game design, focusing on strong characters with difficult moral choices, right? Hey, I've seen that. The entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Cool. Cool. All right, you also have additionally story games. Now, what story was cool about is it started out as like a discussion forum, and people were talking about their stories, how they were creating them, started talking about, you know, how they put together games and design and progress they were doing and promoting their games. They really didn't start selling, but they started getting a little more into it. And actually, this year, you know, the site wanted to kind of remain in only a read-only form. You know, um, so what happened was you had, you know, the there are two sites that came out to support the story game community and include the Gauntlet Forums and Fictioneers. So I suggest, and if you want to, go and take a look at either one of those. And you might also find some other communities out there producing these. Again, you're gonna see those in the Kickstarters, but if there's a certain topic that you're looking for, and I was recently looking for an RPG D D model for some of my my kids, they were like, hey, I want an adventure like this, or we want an adventure that's based in a mall. So I started going out and actually looked both at the Forge story games. I went out and did um, some work where I went out and looked at the you know, the whole tabletop experience, and that's kind of blown Into that, understanding we had to download it as a PDF. So with all that, we're going to have a second podcast. We're going to talk about some of the games. We really talked a lot about the game industry. I know I ran it into the ground. I apologize. But look for the next one. Talk about the games. And it's going to be some great stuff. Thanks.